Welcome to Taxpayer Talk. I'm Jordan Williams and joining me today is Tim Hazeldean, Professor of Economics at the University of Auckland, and with him Dr Eric Crampton, Chief Economist at the New Zealand Initiative Think Tank. We're here to discuss the COVID-19, how that impacts on Auckland's CBD, rail loop, generally the incentives for infrastructure spending, a GST holiday suggestion, and of course, tomorrow's budget. Gentlemen, welcome to Taxpayer Talk. Hi. Professor Hazeltine, I'd, I'd like to start with you. What caught our eye, your piece in on the newsroom website, um, a opinion piece calling for the government to mothball the half-complete and, I'd argue, popular CBD rail loop, um, only being constructed only a couple of hundred metres from where I am. Perhaps you'd like to take listeners through your argument as to why that should be scrapped. Uh, mothballed. Mothballed is the first word. Yeah, it may be scrapped, but certainly mothballed. Um, it's not half completed, by the way. It's, well, we don't know because we don't know what the final cost will be. But it looks like there's been somewhat less than a billion dollars spent so far. The number, uh, the answer to that, that question, how much have you spent so far 12 months ago, was 700 million, which which basically built a trench from Britomart up Albert Street as far as Wellesley Street. No tunnelling. Um, the, my concern is quite simple, really, is that it looks like even uh, sinking those sunk costs and losing them forever, uh, with the cost, the actual cost going forward of the completing the rail link is going to be, it seems, quite conservatively put at at least $4 billion more dollars going forward. And I am, have not been aware, and I've done one of these benefit analyses myself, of any, well, there's a range of estimates of the benefits of the project. I, I would say a midpoint would be $2 billion in present value. And that might be optimistic now because we don't know what commuting will be like in the COVID-19 or the post-COVID-19 world. The cost-benefit was done under John Key and under the previous Auckland Mayor, Lynn Brown. Um, showed that this was a net positive impact on Auckland. What has significantly changed um, to make it no longer worth the cost? The, the costs have changed. The costs, I think, are more than doubled. And I don't think the benefits have changed. Um, and, and, but, and I do think the benefits going forward have become less certain, not that they were certain before, but they've become significantly more uncertain when we um, are facing a world in which working at home may become much more of a regular thing. That's why I think mothballing, rather than perhaps um, completely uh, closing down the project, uh, might be a sensible thing to do. On the other hand, if the government goes through and mothballs a bunch of infrastructure projects that would otherwise make sense, wouldn't that just add to the unemployment queues that the government's hoping to avoid? Fair, a fair question, of course, you might say, why on earth would anyone balk at uh, spending money on a project that's already well underway at this particular time? I, I have two responses to that. One is that we don't, these boondoggles, at, as the Institute calls them, uh, give you a headache. If you've saddled with a project that wasn't worth its cost, you'll be saddled with it for a long time. We, we shouldn't forget good microeconomics just to achieve macroeconomic stimulus. And the second thing is, 
we know part of the reason for the cost increases is inflation of costs in the building industry and construction industry in New Zealand. And they were quite clear about this last year when they said it's going to cost at least 4.4 now. And they blamed, if you like, all the other projects going up, which were driving costs up. I actually think, I may be wrong, that the one sector of our economy that uh, we don't have to worry about too much uh, in terms of coming out of the recession, if there is a recession, is the heavy construction and infrastructure sector. I I would think that those uh, 400 hard hat workers and 850 white collar workers currently engaged in the this rail tunnel would be snapped up by other contractors and other builders in the in the sector. On the other hand, though, if this this is obviously we're going into um, a state of severe economic recession, yeah. won't it therefore become cheaper, for example, to get extra labourers to help with this? Now, doesn't the the argument you just made about price inflation in the construction industry work the other way too? that it's never going to be cheaper than right now to complete this project. Oh, that's a fair point, except I don't think we're really... I, I think we've still got a uh, a problem in our industry, building and construction industry with uh, tight you know, tight resources, lower, not enough labour to do the jobs. But, um, but your point's valid, yeah. It could be a little bit easier going forward than it was projected to be last year. Eric, I want to bring you in here. You've... The New Zealand Initiative has published this report and looked at some international evidence um, around what you call boondoggles. I think that's a Canadian term, isn't it, for for, for government projects that um, notoriously go well over budget or deliver less than what was promised. And perhaps you want to go through some of the findings of your initiative's paper. Sure. Well, I'm not sure if boondoggle is a Canadian term. It's one that I use fairly often, though. Uh, the report's author was Dr. David Law, who's a Kiwi who spent a bit of time at the OECD. So I'm not sure if you picked it up there from a Canadian or if it's more common than you might have thought. We were there looking at uh, recovery from generalized crises and things that tend to help or not. So Tim's right. There are lots of problems that we can get into in some of these spend for the sake of spending kinds of projects. On the good side, countries tend to fare better if they come into these messes from a better fiscal position. So David there was looking at some work by David and Christina Romer, looking back over about 40 years of data across the OECD and countries that have more fiscal headroom heading into problems have more capacity to deal with them. So that's a plus for New Zealand and it speaks to the kind of bipartisan consensus we've had around good fiscal institutions since we since the reforms of the 80s, that we want to have capacity for dealing with things as they come up and then get back to prudent debt, debt levels afterwards that when the next one comes up, we're able to deal with that next one. So part of that prudence is maintaining fiscal sensibility, even when you're in these spots where government wants to be doing more. There's lots of things that the government will rightly be wanting to do around pandemic response, but the spend for the sake of spending programs can have some pretty substantial problems. So if we look through some of the more prominent examples out of the GFC, uh, things like the American Cash for Clunkers scheme, where there were these huge incentives for 
providing for buying more fuel efficient cars if you trade in an older gas guzzler. Uh, most of the subsidies ended up being claimed by people who have, would have bought a new car anyway. So it wasn't really doing that much to stimulate new expenditures, mostly helping people who are already going to be spending. You look through things like the Australian Home Insulation Program, which, which sounds great. Uh, everybody likes the idea of having better insulated houses. Um, as a Canadian, I'm strongly in favor of having well-insulated houses. But the problem that you can get into when you have this as a stimulus program, rather than as coming out of demand from consumers for better insulated houses, is you get a bunch of Muppets trying to retrofit insulation and things catching on fire and such. Um, the scheme did not work out very well. If you look more broadly, there was some work by Christian Bjornskov uh, about four years ago, going back over 212 different crises across 175 countries looking at the effects of economic freedom more broadly on uh, response to crises and recovery from them. So there he was finding that levels of economic freedom going into, um, into the crisis predicted better recovery coming out of it. So you're, you've got the institutions then in place that coordinate some of that microeconomics that Tim was talking about, making sure that things can be a little bit better focused. So some of that suggests that we need to be careful in how we respond to this one with the budget budget coming up. There are really important things that the government needs to be spending money on. And that's it's not for stimulus reasons. It's for pandemic response. It's stuff that has insanely high benefit to cost ratios. And it's almost incomprehensible that they haven't gotten on top of it just yet, but they really have to get on top of it going forward. So things like the scaling up and continued scaling up of contact tracing, so that if any new cases do come in, that we're able to deal with them through finding all the contacts, quarantining them properly, and shutting down those individuals for a limited period of time, rather than the whole darn country or the region where they come from. It expenditures there of a couple million dollars can save tens of billions of dollars easily. It's, it'd be insane not to be maintaining that. Let's go back to your earlier point about economies being in a good position yep. means that they'll, they'll sail through better. Yep. Most people will interpret, is New Zealand in a good position? Would answer yes, because we've got net government debt to a very low level, you know, put aside what, um, what private citizens owe the rest of the world, but at least the public sector owe uh, very little, um, and that puts us in a good position. But that's, a really, that's the extent to which the government can dig deep and stimulate the economy. Isn't the, the separate question, and this is what Professor Hazeldine seems to be talking more about, which is the quality of that spend, are we in that good of a position in terms of the institutional checks? And I note that um, the regulatory impact statements have been um, have been paused for the purposes of um, COVID nineteen um, government legislative responses. Um, and what can we do as economists, or in my case, a, a non economist, but um, but a campaigner, to ensure that the political incentives are aligned? To good quality spending, rather just rather than just boondoggles as, as you'd call them, um, or job creation for the sake of job creation. 
Yeah, no, those are very good points. So while we do do very well in the economic freedom indices and other things like it and all the transparency international stuff, a lot of those look or seem to be a bit at risk with some of the current response. So there's been less transparency than there should be in some elements of what the government's been deciding to do. Um, the quality of spend will go down in the absence of decent regulatory impact analyses. And the one that particularly worries me is making sure that the spend that comes out in the budget is accompanied by the path back to prudent debt levels. So the Public Finance Act is a beautiful thing. It says that government is able to run deficits during really bad times when it needs to, but it has to be forecasting a way out of it. It has to be saying what the path back to normalcy is going to be looking like. And there you can have worry that if the government does too much to lock in a lot of new entitlement spending that carries on year after year, it'll just be that much harder to get back to a normal fiscal state of affairs after the crisis. So whether we, you, whether the government decides to use um, stimulus spending as a short-term measure, which I tend not to prefer, or so, uh, Professor Hazeldean's recommendations around a temporary GST cut, which make a little bit more sense to me than government trying to pick some of those winners, it'll have less capacity for doing either of those because it'll be able to take on a bit less debt if it locks itself into an expensive spending program that'll continue after the crisis because it means that it'll have less headroom to be bringing debt levels back down to prudent levels that we're able to deal with the next crisis as it comes up. Professor, perhaps you want to take us through the reasons why I see in another Herald opinion piece you've mooted the idea of a of, of tax cuts or tax um, reductions in the short term as opposed to stimulus spending. Take us through the economic reasoning for that. Yeah, thanks. Look, um, there is a role for public sector spending, and, and as long as it's not on silly projects, but the public sector, even with great wisdom, which it may not have, can't spin the country out of any recession we're going to go into. It's got to be a private sector recovery. Most of our economy is private sector. It's got to be businesses making money again and being willing to employ people even without subsidies. And so that's why I suggested the most direct way to get the, the private sector moving again is to let the two million or so households in New Zealand pick the winners in their own spending and encourage them to do that by giving them a probably fairly short GST holiday. So this is the um, so this this is similar to what Michael Riddell at Croaking Sandra has been been calling for. Is it is it possible to do it in the short term, um, or do you have to wait to the end of the tax year, or is GST a bit more flexible? I I, I don't really know. My, my brother, who I I put this to, said you have to do it at the start of the month at least. <laughs> so I'm not sure about that. I would have hoped that it, it could be done. It has to be done instantly, otherwise there'll be a recession before everyone won't spend until the holiday comes in. So it has to be done by surprise. Perhaps it's not practical, but if you want to get spending up, give the people you know, a direct incentive to spend. And the GST holiday, I think, is the only way to do that. Sorry, I just wonder if there are other potential ways of doing it. So I, I agree that a temporary GST cut might not be a bad idea. And you could even imagine coupling that with a surprise in, uh, tax switch like uh, Key and English had done um, so about a decade ago, because that's effectively a wealth tax, right? So if you have a temporary GST cut followed by a higher GST at the end of it with offsetting income tax 
reductions, then you're effectively putting in, in, a, in a wealth tax and you can use some of that to pay off some of the debt that we take on. But other ways that we might be thinking about of getting getting people to spend again, it's not always just money money in the pocket, although I, I agree that that's part of it. How many projects are just stymied by consenting requirements and the processes that we've put in place? So that's something that's worried me around some of the mega project exceptions that they've been talking about for the Resource Management Act. And that, again, smacks of the same kind of winner picking that we've worried about in these other boondoggles. If we instead made it a little bit easier for everybody to get on with home renovation projects or any other projects they might wish to undertake, that could be particularly helpful, right? You'd be able to get a pile of stuff done that you've previously had a much harder time getting done. Um, I've had other ideas around income support and access to the student loan scheme to facilitate that, but it'd be really nice to find ways of improving effective productivity by getting some of those barriers out of the way. Can go back to the, the, the point raised earlier about how do we shift the dial or change the political incentives? I mean, Professor Hazelton, you're the only uh, person I've seen raise the issue about the CBD rail route. There's certainly a lot of members of our Auckland-based group, the Ratepayers Alliance, that have a lot of suspicion about the relative value of the CBD rail link um, and the tram to the airport or down Dominion Road as opposed to, say, a second harbour crossing. But there's very, very little both incentive or even sort of people doing the sums midway through these large projects. Um, what are the things that we can do to either align the political incentives or secondly, have other academics such as yourself, because I think there's, it's pretty few and far between. You know, there's, a, there's a small army of economics professors up and down the country, but very few of them willing to stick their head above the parapet, such as yourself. How do we get more to do that? Well, there's, maybe that's true what you said. I, I can name a number of economists in academia who do take their critic and conscience obligations seriously. Uh, but there's, I think, you know, there's one thing that just about all economists, and I think Eric would be on side on this, I do agree on, and no one else listens to us, is the value of, of congestion pricing on roads. Absolutely. And and a whole lot of this this problem we have with uh, too many people piling into the CBD and, and having slow journeys uh, could just be literally eliminated if we had peak time congestion pricing and good provision of alternatives to cars like bus and perhaps trains on the side. So there's some low-hanging fruit out there that, that I hope we you know, start to pick. Well, I, I'm not sure that um, I can go quite far enough to say that we should be introducing new taxes um, at the time. But are you suggesting this is a replacement to, say, Auckland's fuel tax? Congestion tax. Yeah, because cause it's 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 actually con you're not taxing the use of the road, which is what a fuel tax does, and it's the same whether the road's congested or not. You're, you're taxing the use of the space on top of the road, which in which we get a lot of what we call externalities generated. One car enters the motorway halfway down, 100 cars behind it have to slow down a little bit. That should be priced. And if that was priced properly, and, and it could be fiscally neutral, the, the um, money received from congestion pricing could be reallocated in a politically and hopefully economically sensible way, then we suddenly find that a lot of people 
could find other ways of getting to work or working at home or going to work at a different time or even working somewhere else other than the CBD. I wish we'd just get into that. Now, Tim's absolutely correct. We've been doing a bit of work around this as well. Um, The way that we're seeing this, it's even bigger than that, right? So right now we've got these really difficult uh, CBAs. Even if they're trying to do a good job of it, it's hard to do a good CBA around these big infrastructure projects because you don't really know how much value really gets unlocked by adjacent land use and the like. But if we had proper time-sensitive, congestion-sensitive pricing in place in a fiscally neutral way so that you you could get rid of petrol excise effectively, turn every, put everybody onto road user charges, put a congestion charge on top that would be just sensitive to congestion, and then rebate it to everybody in the country uh, equally once out of the collected amount of money if you want to make sure that it's revenue neutral. You'd, you'd start having a demand-based signal of where it really makes sense to build a new road, right? So in Auckland, whether it's the Waterview... It, Okay, the Waterview Tunnel seems to have worked out, but we still don't really know what the cost-benefit on it would have looked like properly, or the, the rail link you're looking at. In Wellington, we've got the, the arguments around having a second tunnel going through Mount Vic. If you put in place a congestion charge, you would either find that the congestion charge is really high, which means that it's really hard for people to shift away from those high-intensity times of day, and that could justify putting in a second tunnel and give you some of the money to do it if you wanted to think about it that way, because you could imagine having a, 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 a pay toll tunnel for a congestion-free one, and you'd have revealed the demand for it out of congestion charges. Or you could find that a very low congestion charge was enough to get rid of the traffic, because people found other times or ways around, in which case you don't have to put in the tunnel automatically you're finding out whether some of these things make sense or not because of the information that's revealed through those prices. It's a, it's a fabulous mechanism. Finally, gents, we're less than 48 hours from Grant Robinson's COVID-19 budget. Um, what are you looking for, Dr. Crampton, in this budget? Most importantly, I want to make sure that they are scaling up the pandemic capabilities appropriately. They have to be ramping up contact tracing. They have to be get. It's just stupid little stuff, right? There's in February it made sense that the government wasn't ready to accommodate the universities, for example, in checking that quarantine facilities were up to spec. They're now saying that they still can't do it, and we're months later, and they've not scaled that up. Tiny bits of investment in scaling up capabilities in the medical officer of health offices in each of the DHBs for checking out uh, quarantine facilities could let us reopen the border to those who'd be willing to undergo quarantine. And suddenly, if you do that, you've got this multi-billion dollar international student market open that could reboot our tourism sector at the same time, instead of looking at bailouts for the universities. It's just insane that they haven't made that investment yet. I hope that they've got that in. Uh, At the same time, I would like to see long-term fiscal responsibility, that they're not locking in new, big, permanent expenditure programs that limit their ability to deal with the current crisis, that they've published the path back to fiscal normalcy. And one bit that I would kind of like to see as a way of helping households that might be facing severe credit limitations in smoothing their own way through this current mess would be expanded access to the student loan scheme, because we know how that works. Repayment is done automatically through an income contingent mechanism, and you can do a lot more in providing targeted support to those who need it through that kind of loan facility than through blanket helicopter money. Professor Hazelden, what are you looking forward to, or what are you looking for 
on Thursday. I've enjoyed listening to Eric. Hi, Eric, by the way. Um, nice. And I, I'm sympathetic to the issues he raises, especially the public health issue. But my my dream budget from Mr. Robertson would be a very, very short budget, not two hours listing all these programs which he might or might not decide later on anyway to finance, but just saying, hey, we're having a GST holiday for midnight tonight. Go spend. Professor Hazeldine, Dr. Crampton, thanks for joining Tax Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Good. Good.